0: You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market.
1: So we are back with another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA, and we hear from business owners all the time. When's the right time to sell my business? And when you've spent years or maybe even decades building your business, it's sometimes hard to begin exploring that next step. Whether you build the business with an exit in mind or exploring a liquidity event for other reasons, deciding when to ultimately sell your business is one of the most important decisions you'll make as a business owner. Like all things in life, success comes down to timing. If you're a business owner contemplating an exit, this episode is for you. I'm joined today by one of Seven Miles partners, Leroy Davis, to discuss the topic, is now the right time to sell my business? So, Leroy, let's jump right into it. When you're talking to business owners about the timing of a liquidity event or a sale, exit, whatever you want to call it, what are some of the primary factors you encourage them to explore?
2: Thanks, Ariel. I appreciate that. And I'll tell you, the first thing, Ariel, whenever we're talking to someone about that, the first thing I think of, and I think everyone at 7 Mile does, is that These business owners, most of them have poured heart and soul into this business and have been working on it a while with the help of employees, and and they've been serving a bunch of customers and things like that for a long time. And we always think it that we're we're always very grateful to be in a position to help people on this leg of the journey. We view it as like these guys have been at this for a while, and, and they're on the five yard line or whatever metaphor you want to pick. And we're there at the end to kind of help them um, almost midwife this thing through the last bit. We do think it's a deep honor to be in a position to do that. And we, and we don't take any of that lightly. These decisions can often be really emotional type decisions. And the first fork in the road that I think about in terms of helping someone think about timing is there's internal considerations, there's external considerations. So Often the external ones are the easiest to think about. The internal one is more about, as an owner, are you ready to hand over the key, so to speak, to somebody else and give up control? That's a that's a big deal. Are you just there mentally on that? Are you are you ready? You know, a lot of times entrepreneurs they they haven't worked for other people in a while or maybe ever. And you know, when you sell your business, often you're continuing on, not always, but often you are. And just mentally, are you are you in that mode? And then also, is your business matured in such a way that you could transition it? Meaning, do you have the second layer of management in place, et cetera, and so forth? Are your processes and procedures such that they could transfer over? And lastly, do you have a good growth plan in place? Meaning it's not, we tend not to work with companies that aren't growing pretty rapidly. So it's not only where have you been, but where are you headed? And is there a clear path for? either a strategic buyer that is someone who's already in your space or a private equity group to come in and help execute and expedite a growth plan. Now, often Seven Mile comes in and helps sharpen that up a bit because we know kind of the norms around that, but you do need that in place. So those are some of the internal considerations and often those are some of the hardest to think about. The external considerations are can be somewhat factual. I mean, is it a good M&A climate? Are you in an industry where a lot of that's going on. And are you uh, familiar with the benchmarking and the valuations and the multiples and all these things? Do you think it's going to line up? Do you think the market's going to line up with your expectations? Obviously, Seven Mile and firms like ours are in a position to help with that, but that's just some commentary on the external consideration.
1: So for business owners that might be listening and they're saying, okay, there's all of these different things that I should be considering. And besides the obvious question of where where do I start, we would obviously say call an advisor, whether it's us or another advisor in the market. We always suggest to people start with an advisor because it's never too early to get them on the phone and have them kind of walk you through some of these items that are going to be really important. But to give some really tangible takeaways for today, we're going to dive into just a few specifics of questions that you can kind of think about as a business owner when you're thinking through these internal and external factors. Because a lot of times as a business owner, you've been so focused on what you're doing and you're excellent at it, but you may have never been part of an M&A process before. And there's a lot of either, for lack of a better word, jargon that's used. And there's just a lot of different pieces of that process that you may be completely unfamiliar with which is not anything to be worried about, just something to kind of be mentally prepared for as you're getting ready to move into this next phase. One of the first questions that I would say when you're thinking through this is something that we already mentioned, and that's, is your business growing? So we right, obviously this is gonna change from industry to industry, but what are some kind of key metrics that you would have people looking at when they're determining if their growth rate is something that would be interesting or appetizing in the M&A market?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So in today's market, particularly in the the asset light businesses that we tend to deal with, many of them are involved with digital transformation and cloud migration, and in some way, shape or form are touching technology which probably permeates like most businesses, but growth rates, as much as anything, determine multiples and valuation multiples within a range, right? So a lot of times, Firms like us will say, "Hey, we think you'll trade between X and Y." You know, from a pricing perspective, and frequently, what dictates where you are on that range is growth rate. And of course, it's true that if you, the larger you are, the more difficult it is to achieve a really high growth rate. But mature businesses that are growing twenty percent or better tend to trade at the upper end of the range. There's other stats that matter a lot. Another is gross profit, which is basically just the revenue less the cost of delivery. That's sort of an MVP metric that the buyer is more than likely going to inherit. In other words, they can't tinker with that too much. I mean, your customer, your contracts kind of are what they are to, to a large extent. And your cost structure with respect to personnel or other direct costs are largely kind of fixed, at least in the short run. So a buyer is going to look at that and just imagine that that's going to kind of roll over into their PL and they are going to make a lot of the pricing decision. On that it's also very indicative of value. I mean, the higher that number is, it just it, that's a very direct correlation between that and the value that you're delivering to your customers. I mean, the cost that it takes for you to deliver versus what you can earn from your clients is just a fundamental metric. Whereas SGA selling um, general administrative and so-called below-the-line numbers like that, those can, you know, those are subject to to cost synergies, and the buyer may tinker around with that for sure. And then Ultimately, you get down to EBITDA, which, of course, is very important, or earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Of course, that's really important, and often it does come down to that. But I think there's other metrics. Revenue growth rates and gross profit are among the most important on the PL, anyway, that's going to dictate where you are within the uh, pricing multiples. could go on with other stats. I mean, there's always stats galore on that but you know if you if you just have to pick a few financial ones those are as good as any to get your arms around and the other the other thing ariel that we see i mean we deal a lot with private equity-backed businesses we deal a lot with entrepreneur-owned businesses and generally speaking the private equity-backed ones are on a more consistent basis have their arms around financials etc frequently with entrepreneurial businesses i mean they, they just haven't had to put the rigor on their financials that you're going to need to in a M&A process and beyond. Frequently, people are just doing what they need to do to keep the bank happy if they have a line of credit or they're just managing AR and looking at what they have in in the bank account, etc. But the minute you enter into a M&A type process, a lot more scrutiny, expectation of gap, and often people aren't lined up there. And... Not only historical, but I would say as or more important, just on forecasting. the minute you enter into an m and a process it's it's tantamount to being like a public company and putting out future earnings expectations. I mean, we would market and hit potential buyers with a with a view on forecasts and 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 the process will unfold over you know six, seven, eight months or whatever it is. and along the way, these buyers will be observing your ability to hit these numbers and particularly when you're looking at high growth rate businesses where that are fetching big multiples, buyers are going to expect that those growth rates maintain. So putting rigor around forecasting, I would say, is one of the more important things that we help our clients do in an M&A process. And it's definitely a higher level of rigor than companies who have not, you know, prior to being in the process, it's, it's definitely a higher, higher level of rigor. And we spend a lot of time on that, often people ask us, hey, when your deals don't close, you know, what's the m- most frequent reason why they don't close? And far and away, the most frequent reason is companies missing their numbers along the way and buyers either retrade or walk from the deal. And it doesn't happen often to us. But when, when things don't close, it's generally around that. And there's, there's always some things you can't control around that. But we try to get our arms around that and and take off the table as many things as possible that we can control. And we know we're subject to volatility, that it's just part of being in business, but it's a really big deal.
1: So I want to back up just a second and dive a little bit deeper into one of the metrics you were talking about, and that's revenue. Because I know a lot of times when we're having conversations with these business owners, I hear Someone told me I need to get to $20 million in revenue before I sell. Uh, That seems to be the golden number that keeps coming up when I'm talking to these business owners. Why do you think that number is relevant? And why is scale and revenue so important to both strategic strategic buyers and investors in the space?
2: Scale and size and all all those things are definitely relevant. So there is a fixed cost to doing M&A. So if the deal is just so small, the difficulty in getting a deal over the finish line is just, it's there whether the deal is big or small. So the in order for the, the juice to be worth the squeeze, it's gotta be above a certain number. Now, I will say that in the, many of the companies that we deal with, or in many of the industries that we deal with, it's not as black and white because we're dealing with technology companies frequently, companies with unique capabilities and intellectual property et cetera, and so forth. And so there are situations where even if the company is a little under 20 million, if they have capabilities or unique customer relationships that are demonstrably scalable over a larger client base, you can't have a strategic buyer come in and do the deal and be able to spread those out over their client base. And all of a sudden, it makes a ton of sense. So in the technology space or technology enabled businesses or asset-light businesses that we deal, and we see that a lot. So we don't put a hard line around 20, definitely got to be a certain size, but we try to dig in on some of these more intangible factors to ascertain. We get surprised regularly with some of the revenue multiples that we see, particularly in today's market, that we would not have seen three, four, five, six years ago. And it's just a part of what's going on with the transformation in the, in the economy and in the industry. So you're right. Revenue size is definitely a consideration. It's indicative of scale. And buyers want to make sure that when they do a deal, it's going to be meaningful because there is a cost. But I think my point here is that there are some subjective factors. that I think we as a specialist, because we are industry specialists, hopefully can, can dig into and understand a little bit more than just you know, the P&L.
1: Yeah. So from here, shifting back to some of those internal factors that you had talked about previously, one of the most important ones, honestly, being what is the next step for the business owner? If you're sitting there now saying, okay, I would like to be retired in five years, you may be wondering, do I need to wait four years before I sell my business? Do I need to sell my business now? How does that timing come into play with a lot of these processes, Leroy?
2: Right. Yeah. We definitely get that one all the time and kind of breaks down into if you're a business owner and you are heavily involved in either customer interaction and or employee management, if you're heavily involved in either of those two categories, odds are the buyer is going to expect that you're going to be there post-transaction. If you're not, if you're an absentee landlord, so to speak, you're really not that active in the business, then yeah, I mean, it's not uncommon for the buyers to say, yeah, you, you know, you should, it's okay for you to step away. But if you are involved in the business and we can help business owners think about exactly what that means, but if you are, then you should expect you, you would stay for a bit. And there's different mechanisms that a buyer will put in place to help make sure that happens. And, and, we, and we definitely advise on all those things and make sure that our clients are protected. But nonetheless, they do have mechanisms to do that. And you should plan on a couple three years that you'd be there. So if you're starting to think about a transaction from just a practical timetable perspective, well one of these processes generally takes, you know six to eight months, and then if you are active in the business, you ought to plan on another you know couple three years. And you know from a timing perspective, that's a, a good thing to think about. And further, from a timing perspective, you need to think about, you know, you can't enter into one of these processes where your business is about to lose momentum. Some potential clients we talked to are like, you know, why would I do this? My business is going great. And to which we would say that's exactly the reason why you would do this now. If it weren't going great, then we would not be able to help you because no one that at least we know would or is likely to do a deal or at a price that you'd be that you'd be comfortable with. So you you brought up a really good point. Timing is a big Factor, and there's a lot of considerations there.
1: And that kind of leads into the next point here. When you're looking down the bench at other people that are heavily involved in the business, whether you're, like Leroy said, an absentee landlord or equally involved running the business as some of your other management team, how deep of a bench needs to be in place before you start entering this process? Obviously, we know the financials need to be in order. So having a strong controller or CFO is always going to be. A very high priority, but outside of that position, what kind of secondary or tertiary level of management needs to be pretty strong in order to be attractive to buyers?
2: Particularly in the case where you're thinking about positioning yourself as stepping away for the business in the near term or or right when the transaction closes, something like that, you you definitely need to identify who the likely heir, parent, or general manager, or president, or however you want to. Title that individual. You definitely want to want to ensure that's in place, and you want to ensure that that individual plays a prominent role in the sale process, and that they meet the buyers and or investors at the right time. So you do want that for sure, particularly if you're thinking about transitioning out. And you know, it's not uncommon, particularly well, it's not uncommon in general, but it's not uncommon to have maybe a couple holes here or there. You know, whether they be COO or Sales and marketing. It's just not uncommon to not be completely strong there because whether it's a strategic buyer that wants to perceive that they bring some synergies to the table, in which case, if they look at that org chart and you talk about it openly and say, you know, I'm thinking about filling this position, and perhaps they, the buyer, looks at that and says, you know what, we have someone like that that could likely fill this role. You know, that's not like the end of the world if you don't have all that filled out. And the same is true for, for private equity, you know where businesses are coming in are recapping in a control type transaction and they're looking for what are the growth initiatives. It's not an altogether unacceptable thing to say, hey, by the way, a part of the growth here is gonna be we need to fill a few roles and here's what they are. Often private equity groups are more than happy to participate in that kind of stuff and they believe they can add value in the process of selecting those people. The potential gotcha there that you just need to have eyes wide open is that the minute you start saying stuff like that to either a strategic or a private equity group, they could say, yeah, okay, well, not now I see why your profits are so high. Historically, you know, you haven't had these types of, maybe you didn't have a COO, maybe you didn't have a head of sales or, or, or what have you, and we're going to need those. And so really, you've been running this kind of thing kind of lean and thin, and we're going to need to, Add those things. And so, therefore, I think we should normalize EBITDA, et cetera, and so forth. So, if you're not careful, if you don't talk about it correctly, you can wind up down that kind of a path, which we'd like to think you could avoid. Anyway, I mean, th- th- those are all things that we see every day and we help our clients think through and we help them formulate the right strategy in terms of discussions with buyers on those topics.
1: And I think a probably a good place to wrap things up here would be talking through. Who is the team of advisors that a business owner really needs to have in place and on their side when they're thinking about this process? Because we did point out yes, when you start considering an exit, bringing on the right investment bank and partner in terms of an advisory firm is definitely one group of advisors you're going to need. But we found in our experience that we're not the only ones. It kind of takes a specialized team. So, do you want to touch on a couple of those other parties that will end up playing really pivotal roles?
2: Yeah, you definitely need a good deal attorney. And deal attorney is not just a corporate customer contract type an attorney. It's someone who does specialize in M&A because this this is its own animal. So definitely a good deal attorney that knows the things that matter versus the things that don't. That's a big deal. So you want a good M&A attorney that can come in at the right time. And we work closely with them at the right points in the process. That's a big deal. If you need help on the accounting and financials and then there are a number of good firms out there that can help just kind of clean up the books a bit so to speak to, to take it out to market we we definitely work with them and do some of that work along with them but you know like a sell side quality of earnings or something of that nature there's a number of really good accounting firms out there that do that that we think is really handy to avoid surprises down the line and that's a good idea i think if you like a lot of entrepreneurs, much of your net worth is tied up in illiquid private stock in your company you know, until this event. And this may be the first time you get sort of a windfall. So therefore, you definitely want to well in advance of even signing a letter of intent with a buyer or investor, you want to get with a good asset management slash wealth management group to help you with estate planning. Frequently, there's things you can do in advance of a transaction to plan. That's definitely a key party to this. They can also help you with some after-tax cash flow analysis around the deal to make, you know, to, to make sure that, yeah, this is the right deal and this is the right price. I'm going to have the rest of my life or whatever I need kind of taken care of with this transaction. So that's an important group. And I will, and I know this is self-serving, but I will touch on the investment banker thing. Of course, I think you know people should hire 7 Mile, but taking 7 Mile out of the picture, just investment banker in general, I think that you want someone who understands your business and industry. So you do want someone who has a uh, past deal experience. I mean, it's just in your industry. I mean, it's just tough to, it's just tough to overcome that. You want someone who's familiar with the deal structures and the buyers, the investors, and, and also just how to properly position and talk about your business. I mean, your investment banker plays many roles. One of them is their chief marketing officer for your company to the buyer and investor group for six to eight months. So you want someone who knows your business and your industry, can tell the story, can position, not just all the strengths, but every business has its challenges and constraints. So is, is the investment banker going to be able to talk about all of that in the most constructive way? And that's number one. The other is that we are in the professional services business. So you need to be able to trust your investment banker. And we actually, I actually think that's one of the funnest part of the jobs. We frequently find ourselves in a position where we meet a company And we have to very quickly earn their trust because these are like six to eight month long projects. I mean, often we know our clients well in advance of that, but we're working with them for six to eight months. So we have to earn their trust quickly and such that when it comes down to negotiations and helping them choose the right buyer or investor and make some what can be really tough decisions, they trust us implicitly. And so it's always fun and a challenge to do that and to earn that trust. We find the best way to do it is really simple. Say what you're going to do and then go do that. And then if you just keep repeat, if you just repeat that after a while, people are like, okay, well, I guess I can That's what they say. It's just really basic. And we enjoy doing that. And we also enjoy doing it with companies all over the planet from different cultures with different perspectives on things. And it's really one of the more enjoyable Parts of the job. The other thing with the investment banker is that frequently, the partner or or MD or whomever that comes out to pitch the business may or may not be that involved in in the deal. And we we kind of pride ourselves on no, we, we figured out the the right spots for seniors on the team to to get involved here, the negotiations and uh, the positioning narrative, and all of those things and discussions with certain buyers and investors. So we sort of picked those spots, and, and to this day, we're all I'm one of the founders of the business and I'm still very involved in in transactions. So anyway, that's a self-serving end to this podcast era. but I do believe it all.
1: And as we wrap things up here, if you have additional questions as you're listening to this and thinking, okay, well, how do I know what M&A markets are hot? Or how do I figure out when exactly I should pull the trigger on interviewing banks or signing up and officially bringing on an advisor and starting a mandate? Please don't hesitate to reach out. Like I said at the beginning of this, it's never too early to start having a conversation. All of our contact information is on our website under the company section. You can find our full team. You can find Leroy and myself there. We also have a lot of information that's readily available. So, some of our sector watches have a lot of benchmarking on certain industry sectors so that you can see for yourself where some of the companies are trading at, who are the active buyers and really just start educating yourself if that's something that you're interested in. We'll leave it here. I think we've covered a lot of information in a short amount of time. But again, if something has sparked your interest coming out of this conversation, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We would love to learn about your business and learn some more about your goals.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number seven, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business.